Matthew chapter 26. So we've been coming through the Gospel of Matthew together for a while now. And this morning we land on Matthew 26, verse 1 through 13. That's our aim this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for your word, your perfect word, your precious word, Lord. And I pray, God, that your word would be like fire shut up in our bones, Lord. And that you would let this be a moment, Lord, where, where we are nourished by it, God. We're, we're strengthened by the truth. Please, please help us, God. Come and be with us as we meditate on your word together. We're dependent on your help. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're moving into a new section in Matthew. So from here, Matthew 26, verse 1 and on, we really, uh, the writer is taking us on a beeline to the cross. So we're just on a, on a straight line to the death of Jesus, to the cross, the cross, the cross. If you look at verse 1, this is before we even read our passage, but verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings. Now, if you remember, as we've come through the Gospel of Matthew, that's a repeated phrase, when Jesus had finished these sayings. There's five different teaching blocks scattered throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and the way each one of those teaching blocks ends is with that phrase. When Jesus had finished these sayings. Now I want you to notice that this time it says when Jesus had finished all these sayings. So it's as if he's saying, and he is, the teaching ministry of Jesus, we've covered that. Now it's a beeline to the cross. We've covered what Jesus has taught, what, what Matthew wants to cover as, as what Jesus has taught, his teachings, his doctrine. And now we're on this straight course towards the cross now I want you to just get a feel for this so don't this is too fast so don't write this down we'll slow down in just a minute but just to get you a feel for how how everything is moving towards the cross just listen to this the first section that we're going to be in of chapter 26 is Jesus prophesying his death on the cross the next section is Jewish leaders plotting his death on the cross the next section is a woman pouring oil on Jesus to prepare him for his death and his burial. The next section is Judas's betrayal that leads us to the arrest of Jesus and the death of Christ on the cross. The next section is the institution of the Lord's Supper that points us to the death of Jesus on the cross. The next session, section is Peter's denial which leads us towards the cross. The next section is Jesus praying in Gethsemane. Just before he heads to the cross. And then the rest of it is arrest, trial, mocking, crucified. So I want you to feel that, that where we're at in this, in this gospel right now is we're moving with a speed towards the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where we're moving right here. So as we read verses 1 through 13, I want you to keep that in mind. We're on a beeline to the cross. Look at verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, 
You know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now we're going to try to take this section of scripture in three parts. Number one, you see here the prophecy of his death in verses 1 and 2. You see the prophecy of his death in verses 1 and 2. Let me read it one more time. I want you to notice Jesus reminds them of two things that they ought to already know. Look at it. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know, two things they ought to already know. You know that after two days the Passover is coming and... The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. So two things they ought to know. The first thing is that the Passover is coming after two days. Now, of course they knew that. Of course they knew the Passover was coming after two days. The Passover was a yearly celebration. Uh, everybody knew about the Passover. They anticipated the Passover. Just like you know when Thanksgiving is here, you know when Christmas is, is around the corner, they knew the Passover was here. Not to mention, they're a part of the massive crowds that are packing into Jerusalem for the festival, the feast of the Passover. So of course they know that after two days is the Passover. Now, Jesus draws our attention to this for a reason. Hey, after two days there's a Passover and the Son of Man is going to be crucified. There's a reason why he's drawing their attention to the Passover here. I want you to think about what the Passover is. We can go read about it in Exodus 12. What is this thing called Passover? The Passover is God saving God's people from God's wrath. The Passover is God saving his people from his own wrath. He's going to bring down judgment and wrath in Egypt. But he's going to make a way that his people could be saved from his own wrath and from his own judgment. How? In the Passover, how will he save his people from the judgment? By the blood of a lamb. By the blood of a lamb. How, how, could, 
How could these people be uh, delivered from the judgment coming down on Egypt? I want you to slaughter a lamb. Go read about it in Exodus 12. I want you to slaughter a lamb and then take that blood and put it over your doorpost. And Exodus 12, 13 says, when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague will not be on you to destroy you. What kind of lamb? Well, Exodus 12 tells us that it must be a male lamb. It must be a spotless, perfect, blameless lamb. And Exodus 12 says, don't break his bones. Don't break his bones. Now, this is the perfect setting. And Jesus wants us to make the connection here. To, after two days, Passover and the, and, the, and the crucifixion of the Son of Man. Make the connection. This is the perfect setting for Jesus to be crucified. Because think about it. What is Jesus' death? Jesus' death is God saving God's people from God's wrath. God is going to bring down judgment on this world. All of us deserve to go to, to go to hell. But God is going to save. In Jesus' death, God is going to save a people for himself. It's God saving his people from his own wrath. Well, how will he do it? By the blood of a lamb? In fact, by the blood of the lamb. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ Jesus, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. He is the Passover lamb. Jesus' blood is the blood that God sees on your life and passes over you, and you don't come under the wrath of God. John the Baptist said, Behold, the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What kind of lamb is Jesus? He's a male lamb. He's a perfect lamb, no sin, no blemish, worthy to be your sacrifice. And by the way, at the cross, the other two's bones were broken, but his weren't. His bones were never broken. So the Passover is the perfect setting for the death of Jesus Christ. And of course it is, right? Because this is why it was designed. From the very beginning as God designs all of history and he places this thing called Passover, it's always meant to be a shadow to the lamb that would come. To the Passover sacrifice that would come in Christ Jesus. And so Jesus in this prophecy in verse 1 and 2 here, about in two days the Passover will come and the Son of Man will be crucified. He wants us to make this connection between these two things. Which is why the second thing he said you ought to know is this. The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You see it there? The Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now how would they know this? It makes sense that they would know that there's a Passover coming, right? They've seen this every year since they were kids. Of course they know there's a Passover coming. But how would they know that Jesus is about to be crucified? Well, because he keeps telling them. Over and over again, he keeps telling them. Let me read these to you. In chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 21, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. They're in Jerusalem now. And suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. And be killed. And on the third day, be raised. He says it again, chapter 17, verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, 
The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. He says it again in chapter 20, verse 18. Listen, listen to this over and over again, verse 18. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. This is when they were on the way. We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. So he keeps telling them this, and yet they just don't seem to get it. They keep speaking and believing and living in such a way, and they're going to keep doing that after this. They don't seem to get it that he's going to be crucified here. And so in our passage, Jesus tells them again. Except this time he says, it's coming in just a couple days. It's coming in just a couple days. Passover, and the Son of Man is going to be delivered up to be crucified. Now think about the way Jesus says this in this prophecy. The Son of Man. Who is the Son of Man? And your, your, your mind, when you, when you read, Jesus loves to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And your mind, when you, when you read Son of Man, you, your mind ought to go to Daniel chapter 7. Do you remember that? Daniel chapter 7. That prophecy that there was, there was coming one. A man, a human, an actual human. This gonna a son of man that's actually gonna come before the ancient of days, the God of glory, the creator of all. And to this man is gonna be given dominion and authority and kingship. And he's gonna be the king forever, an unending kingdom. And it's going to be a global kingdom. Every nation and tribe and tongue will bow down to this man. And so Jesus says here, that son of man, Daniel 7, son of man, is going to be delivered up, humiliated by death at the cross. That's shocking. You mean the Daniel 7 one that's supposed to be king forever, king of the universe, and you're saying that he's going to be mocked and humiliated and crucified? And the answer is yes. But why? Why would this Son of Man be crucified? And the reason is that the cross must come before the crown. The Daniel 7 Son of Man that would receive the crown forever must first go to the cross before he receives the crown. And, and it must happen that way because if it doesn't happen that way and Jesus just comes and, and the Son of God takes on human flesh and he lives out his perfect life and he takes his kingdom and he's crowned forever and he's never crucified, that's bad news for us. That would mean the perfect life of Jesus would only stand as another testament to our condemnation. That just like the law put next to our life condemns us because we don't meet up to it, so the life of Jesus would be put up to our life and condemn us because we never live up to it if he skipped the cross. But he didn't skip the cross. He goes to the cross before the crown so that he could die for sinners and all the wrath of God that's supposed to fall on us. He would absorb it for us at the cross. He would take our punishment first. And then he would receive his crown. The cross is so important. And that's where we're at in this passage. We're on a beeline to the cross. And this, all of this reminded me of a verse. I know you've heard it. Galatians 
and says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of Christ. Brothers and sisters, this whole section is reminding us of the importance, the, the centrality, the glory, the beauty. This ought to have your affections. It ought to be on your lips. The cross, the cross, the cross. Be a cross boaster. Far be it that I would boast in anything except what this says, except in the cross. Be a Christ and a cross boaster in your life. Let the cross of Jesus be in your mind, in your heart, in your mouth constantly. God's word puts us in that, pushes us in that direction. Now that's the prophecy of his death. This next section, verse 3 through 5, it gives us the planning of his death. Verse 3 through 5, the planning of his death. Let's look at it. Verse 3. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So in this passage, we see the Jewish leaders plotting to arrest and kill Jesus. Verse 3 tells us who they are, chief priest, elders, the high priest Caiaphas is a part of this. This is like uh, members of the Jewish Supreme Court. This is members of the Sanhedrin, highest court in the land. These are powerful men in Judaism, powerful men in Jerusalem, and they're plotting how to arrest and kill Jesus. These are the very men that Jesus has been publicly embarrassing over the last few days as they attempted to to debate with him publicly, and these are the ones that are plotting how they're going to murder Jesus. Now, this is not a new thing. I'm going to read a verse to you from chapter 12, verse 14. They've been going after this for a time. Matthew 12, verse 14 says this, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They have wanted to destroy him for a while. Next verse says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. It wasn't time yet for him to be destroyed. It wasn't time for him to allow his enemies to murder him. But that's not the case here. They're plotting how to murder him, and he's not withdrawing. He's leaning into them. Now is the time. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be crucified. The planning of his death. Now, it says here that they're trying to do it by stealth. You see it in verse 4. They're trying to arrest him by stealth. They're trying to do it in a sneaky way. Trying not to be seen doing this. The reason for that is given in verse 5. They're trying to do it by stealth because they, they don't want the crowds that are packed in Jerusalem at the feast, at the Passover, to see this. And all of a sudden there's people that like Jesus and a riot breaks out. A mob breaks out against them, so they're trying to do this by stealth. Now, here's something I want you to notice. I want you to give some attention to this. These men are planning the death of Jesus, but I don't think we should give them too much credit. They're planning the death of Jesus, but I don't think we should give them too much credit 
for the death of Jesus. Their planning of the death of Jesus is actually fitting right into the divine plan of God for the death of the Son of God. In other words, their little plot fits very neatly into the divine plot. These men are just instruments in the hands of Jesus as he is playing out his planning, his plot. Their little plot is fitting right there neatly into the divine plot. Now you can see this in other scriptures. So I'm going to read Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Listen to this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, Jesus the Christ. This Jesus delivered up according to what? The plan of the Pharisees? No, it says here, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You wickedly killed him, and yet it's, it's fitting right into the midst of the divine plan of God that Jesus would be crucified. So you can see this in other scriptures. But I want you to understand... You, know, you don't have to go to other scriptures to see this because Matthew in his gospel is writing this out in such a way that he wants us to see it. That who is planning, who ultimately is planning the death of Jesus? It's God. This is, this is God's divine plan, ultimately. And Matthew wants, to see, see that he wants you to see this in the way he's laying out his gospel. So I want you to think about this. Matthew 26 we're on a beeline to the cross. We're moving towards the cross. And what gets mentioned first? Not the Jewish leaders and their murder plot, because they're not in control. Not Judas's uh, betrayal, right? Not, not him, because he's not in control. Not Peter's denial, because it's not Peter's fault. He's not in control. Not the Roman governor. He's not mentioned first, because he's not in control. Who's mentioned first? We get Jesus telling his disciples in two days. That's when it's going to go down. Passover, the Son of Man is going to be crucified in two days, because Jesus is in control of this. And the Holy Spirit and his word, he wants you to see that. He wants you to to feel the weight of that. Jesus is in control of this. These Jewish leaders are just instruments in his hand. I want to read this to you from 1 Kings chapter 12. Sometimes you can read a passage. They're scattered all throughout the Old Testament. These passages that just say something surprising, and you notice in these passages, man, our God is sovereign over everything. So I want to give you one example of that. 1 Kings chapter 12 Verse 15 says this, So the king did not listen to the people. little background here. Solomon was king. Solomon's son Rehoboam became king. At Rehoboam is where the kingdom split, and that's what we're getting described to us here. Why did the kingdom split? Because Rehoboam was approached by the people... And rather than listening to good counsel and listening to the people, he listened to wicked counsel and he did not listen to the people. So Rehoboam made the sinful mistake of not listening to the people. Now listen to this verse. So the king did not listen to the people for, we're going to get an explainer. 
And in other words, why did King Rehoboam not listen to the people? And you think it's going to say because he was a fool, because he wasn't wise, because he was arrogant, because he listened to the young guy's advice. You think that's what he's going to say. And, and all that's true. But instead, look at what it says. It says, he did not listen to the people. Why? For it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. Isn't that beautiful, the sovereignty of God? Wait a minute, why did Rehoboam make that foolish and stupid decision? Why? Well, it is because he was being a fool, but there's a bigger picture this is fitting into. Because God, this is a turn of events from the Lord, and God is fulfilling his word. Why are these, why is this Jerusalem council? These Pharisees and Sadducees and the chief priests, why, why in the world, why are they pl plotting the murder of Jesus? Because they're wicked? Yes. Because they hate him? Because they're jealous? Yes, yes. Because they're scared they're going to lose their position? Yes, all these sinful things are there. But ultimately, what's the problem? This turn of affairs is from the Lord. What's going, here, going on here is from the Lord. God is about to, by his own predetermined plan, deliver up his son to be crucified for the salvation of many. And Matthew wants us to know it. First thing we get here is Jesus telling you in two days. Now, one more thing about that. Just, just how in control is Jesus of his own death here? And isn't it interesting that the chief priests and these guys, they say, we're going to murder him, but let's just not do it at the feast, at the Passover feast. Let's not do it there. Let's just not do it there. So that's just one stipulation. We're going to murder him, but one stipulation, let's not do it at the Passover feast. Jesus says, no, nah, you're going to do it in two days. Jesus, said, Jesus is putting on display, I'm sovereign over even when you kill me. I'm even sovereign over that. So don't miss the sovereign control of Jesus in the way Matthew lays this out. He, he does not have his life taken from him. He lays down his own life. Jesus lays down his own life. Brothers and sisters, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. That's directly from Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. If he is absolutely sovereign and in control of his death, how he dies, when he dies, if he's absolutely in control of that, don't you think he's in control of everything? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Now, third in this passage, we're going to look at the preparations for his death. Now, that's in verse 6 through 13. Verse 6 through 13, the preparations for his death. Now, we get the setting or the location in verse 6. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Okay, so it's at Bethany, a small town just a couple miles away from Jerusalem. Seemed like they would go in and out in, during Passion Week. They'd go into Jerusalem, come back out to Bethany. So they're in Bethany. They're at the house of Simon the leper. 
If you go read the passage in John 12, this really seems to be a flashback because John 12 tells us this happened six days before, six days before Passover. And that's the way Matthew words it here. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany, so he's pointing back to something. It's a flashback here. And we know from John 12 that the woman that's being described to us here that pours the perfume on Jesus' head, the woman is Mary, sister of Martha. And at this time, you got Mary's there in the house with Simon the leper, Mary, and Martha, and Lazarus. They're all there. John 12 tells us that they're at this event. Mary is the woman. And what does the woman do? Look at verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. So Lazarus has just been risen from the dead, according to John 11 and 12. They're having a dinner there for him, and he's reclined at table, and she comes and pours out this ointment on his head. It says there that she has an alabaster flask. That would have been a very expensive container that would hold this ointment, or maybe a better word there would be perfume. Typically, they would have a long neck on this flask that you would break before you poured it out. It says there in verse 7, very expensive ointment, very expensive perfume. John 12 tells us this would have been, this, the call, you know, what, when Judas talks about it, you know, Judas um, was the first one to say, uh, this should have been given to the poor, but it tells us in John 12 that he wasn't being sincere. He just wanted the money for himself. And he made an evaluation that that could have been sold for almost a year's wages. And very expensive. Almost a year's wages, very expensive. And it says here, she pours this stuff out on his head. Now, don't think a little dab. Don't think like, get a little bit on your finger, dab it on his forehead. Don't think that. She pours it out. Verse 7 says she pours it out on his head. If you look down in verse 12, it says she poured it on his body. On his head, on his body. John 12, the, the parallel passage says she poured it on his feet, his head, his body, his feet. So don't think a little dab. Think like Psalm 133. You remember Psalm 133? That the unity in the body of Christ is like the oil being poured out on Aaron's head and running down his beard and down into the edges of his garment. Think like that. Imagine the strong fragrance filling up the room. She pours this perfume on and this strong fragrance just filling up the room. That's what she did. Now, what was the disciples' response to her? And you can see that in verse 9. The disciples' response was this. Excuse me, verse 8. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant. This angered them, saying, Why this waste? They're angry. Why is she wasting this stuff? What do you mean, why am I wasting it? Verse 9, for this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. As I said, John 12 says that this complaint was led out by Judas. The other disciples joined to his voice. Why this waste? The Gospel of Mark tells us that they were scolding her. It uses that phrase, they scolded her. 
Why this waste? They're scolding her. She's being scolded for wasting this stuff. This is wasteful living. What are you doing? Imagine her being scolded there. It reminds me of David's wife. You remember 2 Samuel 6? David is leaping and dancing before the Lord. And it says that his wife despised him in her heart. She says to him, you're acting like one of those vulgar fellows. And it doesn't seem to bother David too much because David goes on to say, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. Didn't bother him. And here with Mary, we don't get any evidence that it bothered her too much either as she was being scolded. But we do see Jesus coming to her defense. And it's beautiful. In verse 10 through 13, we see Jesus' response to this lady and her expensive sacrifice and the disciples that are scolding her. We see Jesus' response. And there's treasures here. There's beautiful stuff here. So slow down and hear Jesus' response in verses 10 through 13. First, look at verse 10. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. Man, I love that phrase. She has done a beautiful thing to me. Can you imagine her hearing that? She's being scolded for what she has done. Why this waste? You wasted that. That's not what's right. And Jesus says, hold up a minute. She's done a beautiful thing to me. Man, that had to mean so much. This woman's act was an act of love, an act of deep affection and sacrifice, this expensive perfume, so much less than what Jesus deserves, but all that she has poured out for him. Mary is a hero to imitate in the gospel accounts. She's a hero to imitate in the gospel accounts. You remember Luke chapter 10? Something similar to this actually happened. Where's Mary in Luke chapter 10? She's sitting at Jesus' feet, just listening to his word, just mesmerized by the teaching of Jesus. She's sitting at his feet, listening to his word. And Martha, who's also here as well, Martha says, Jesus, tell her to serve like I'm serving. Tell her to do that. And she gets to hear from the lips of Jesus. One thing's needful. One thing's needful. And Mary's chosen that good part. And then here we see something similar. This is wasteful. Jesus, tell her that it's wasteful. Man, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing to me. This sacrifice of love and affection, of a life poured out for Christ, all I have poured out for Christ, she's done a beautiful thing for me. Mary is a hero to imitate. Now here's the truth. What some people may call waste, Jesus will call beautiful. Keep that in mind. What some people may call waste, Jesus just might call beautiful. David's dancing. Oh, that's wasteful. What are you doing? You're like a vulgar fellow. No, beautiful in the sight of Christ. Beautiful in the sight of Christ. It reminded me of John Patton. John Patton's a missionary, Scottish missionary, Scottish missionary in the mid-1800s. And he wanted to take the gospel to the New Hebrides, which was full of these tribes that were cannibalistic, these cannibals. Right? 
and very well-respected people in his community, they hated what he was doing. They were frustrated at him, saying, you're wasting your life. You're trying to take the gospel to these people. You're wasting your life. You're wasting your talents. One man named Mr. Dixon, he famously exploded. The cannibals! You'll be eaten by cannibals! And this didn't bother John Patton because he said this, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. That sacrifice of John Patton, beautiful in the eyes of Christ. People are telling him, it's a waste, it's a waste, don't do this. Why are you doing this? Beautiful in the eyes of Christ. And what Mary did here was beautiful in his sight. And that ought to be a prayer. Lord, help us to live. Help us to live under the eyes of Jesus and not everybody else. Who cares what people think? The people that are around you that aren't clinging to God's word and trusting in the Lord Jesus and he's their Lord, he's their leader. Why does it matter what they think? Live a life of devotion to him and, and full out affections and love and sacrifice. Pour it all out to him. If they think it's wasted, they think it's crazy, who cares? Who cares if Jesus says, that's a beautiful thing in my sight. That's a beautiful thing in my sight. Live your life under the gaze of Jesus, not this world. What's Jesus think about it? And let that be a God to you. Now he keeps going. After he says that she's done a beautiful thing, verse 11, he says, For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. Now this is not a diminishing of of, you know, care for the poor, right? I mean, we literally just heard a parable from Jesus where he says, people that are truly my disciples will care for the least of these. So this is not a diminishing of care for the poor. This is a response to their, their fake excuse. This is a waste. It could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. You could do them good whenever you please. But you don't get the moment you're in. You don't always have me. You don't get the moment you're in right now. You won't always have me. Now verse 12, and y'all this is beautiful. Verse 12 reveals to us the reason. So it's a, it's, her act was an act of love and affection. But even deeper, what's the reason? What is Mary communicating as she pours out this perfume on Jesus' head? Verse 12 tells us, in pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. This act was to prepare me for burial. Now this gives us even more reason to admire and seek to imitate Mary. This act was an act of faith. Not just an act of affections and love and sacrifice, but it was an act of faith. And I want to try to explain that to you. This kind of expensive perfume 
being lavishly poured out in this, in this culture would have been connected to a certain custom. When is another time that stuff like this would happen? This is something that you did for the dead. This is what you did for the dead as you prepare them for burial. This is an act of honoring the dead. The perfume being poured out, it, it covers up the, the smell of a decomposing body and honors them as they're put into the grave. So this is an act, something that you do for the dead. That smell, that fragrance that they smelled, these disciples and everybody around would have connected that to a funeral. Somebody outside of the house could have smelled this and thought, who died? Not because it smelled bad, but because this is what you do. This is the funeral smell. That's the custom at this time. And we know that this is what Mary has in mind because that's what Jesus says in verse 12. She did this for what reason? For my burial. By pouring this perfume on his head, over his body, over his feet, she's treating him as if he is dead while he's alive. Now why would she do such a thing? Because she believes Jesus' words. She believes Jesus' words. This was an act of faith. Jesus has repeated it over and over and over again. I'm going to die. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. They won't believe it. They won't believe it. They won't believe it. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified in two days. They won't believe it. Mary gets it. She's, they won't take him at his word, but she's taking him at his word right here. This is an act of faith. Jesus said he would die. Mary believes it. And, she, and here she acts on that faith by preparing him for his burial before he actually dies. And the disciples around her, they can't fathom. Why is she doing this? He's alive. Why is she doing this? Now, this is another really sweet example for us to follow. That we would be a people that take Jesus at his word. That when Jesus says it, we just move in faith and say, I just trust his word. I don't need all the other answers. Jesus said it. I believe it. I live my life in light of it. He said it. Uh, he said it in his word. I believe it. And therefore, I live and act in faith. It's rooted in his word. But what if nobody else sees it? What if nobody else cares about it? What if they malign you for it? What if they scold you? Who cares? Just believe his word. I pray that we'd be a church full of men and women that just read the word of God and just take it. If I just believe what he says. And therefore it affects, it affects what I do. Just believe his word. Now lastly... And this is an awesome way to end this passage. It's an awesome end to Jesus' response. Verse 13. Now the way he starts it off, he says, Truly I say to you. So man, he's really drawing some attention here. Remember we talked about that. That phrase means listen up. Hear what I have to say. Write it down. Truly I say to you. And he says this. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, Wait a minute. What gospel? Wherever this gospel is proclaimed, what, what gospel? This gospel concerning the death of Christ. I'm about to die. They're plotting my death. 
She's preparing me for burial. Wherever this gospel is preached, the centerpiece of the gospel is the death of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified for sinners. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world. Now I think this is amazing. Jesus is on a beeline to the cross to a gruesome death. A lady's preparing him for burial. And what's on his mind? Gospel and global proclamation. Wherever this gospel is preached, proclaimed in the whole world. Gospel, good news. It means that the death of Jesus is good news. Gospel means good news. So the death of Jesus is good news. Now, if that sounds strange to you, wait a minute, I thought you loved Jesus. I thought Jesus was everything to you. I thought he was the one that you follow. And you just said his death is good news. If that seems strange to you, you don't understand the Bible. You don't get it. It's good news because Jesus' death was not like any other death. His death was a substitution. He died in the place of his people. He was punished in the place of his people. He absorbed the wrath of God in the place of his people. I'm preparing you for burial. This lady is preparing me for burial. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. A gruesome death. Gospel, he says. Good news, he says. Because through his death, your punishment, your sin can be taken away and you can be set free. You can have forgiveness of sins. And then, and then, Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, he's just assuming it. It's just going to be proclaimed in the whole world. Now Matthew, is, as we've gotten towards the end of Matthew's gospel, he's repeated this several times. Matthew 24, verse 14, where it says, This gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. He just said it's coming. It's just going to happen. This gospel will be proclaimed in the whole world. It's going to happen. He says that here in our passage today. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, the proclamation is just going to happen. Global proclamation. It's going to happen. And then you get to the end of the gospel, and he says, make it happen. Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Make it happen. Global proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that as a church we would be like Christ in this. That what would be on our minds. He's on, a way to, on his way to a gruesome death. And what's on his mind? What do we want to have on our mind? Gospel, gospel, gospel. Global proclamation to all the world. Man, may we be a church like that. To grow as a church like that. Now, getting to the point here, he goes on to say, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, think about that. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done, what she has done, will be told in memory of her. Jesus just, he doesn't tell the disciples to tell it in memory of her. He just tells them it's going to happen. It's just going to happen. It'll be told 
in memory of her. Everywhere this gospel is heralded, this lady's act of love and her act of faith will be known. This woman is going to be famous across the globe, he tells them. This woman will be famous across the globe. So you imagine that. The disciple, to the disciples, you're scolding her for what she's done. I'm going to make her famous across the planet. You're scolding her for the act of love, the act of faith. I'm going to make her known throughout the whole world. And you can just imagine Judas, right? He's the one that led that out. She's wasting it. What are you doing? And you can just imagine Judas saying, you know, under, of course, under his breath, you're yeah, right. This woman, Mary, this woman is going to be famous throughout the whole world. She's going to be known throughout the whole world. This lady and yet here we are today fulfilling the words of this prophecy. <laughs> the gospel has been proclaimed in Mississippi. And here we are spreading the fame of Christ and the fame of this woman and what she's done. The gospel has been proclaimed in Kunming, China with the Brogdons there. And you better believe it that they know about and they appreciate the work and the act of this woman. The gospel's been proclaimed in Puno, Peru, and the church planted there. And you better believe they read their Bibles and they know about this woman. What Jesus says comes to pass. He always fulfills his word. And here we are this morning fulfilling it together. I hope in this passage you'll see the glory of Christ. Specifically the glory of the cross. The cross, the cross. And I hope it will stir your heart to have this Mary-like, who cares what others are thinking, lay down my life, sacrifice, adoration, love, full of faith and trust in his word. I pray this passage would encourage you to be like her. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage and this revelation of who you are, Lord Jesus. We lift you up as sovereign king. You're so in control, Lord, of all things that you even control the very moment of your death. No one, take, no one has taken your life, Lord. You laid it down of your own accord. And we praise you for that, God, and all the good news wrapped up in that, that your death means that we can be set free, that your death, Lord Jesus, means that we can be forgiven. And I pray for every soul in this room that they would be full of boasting in the cross. And God, I pray for every soul that's, that's cold to these things, Lord. And especially those, Lord, that are lost, that you would awaken them to the cross, the glories of Jesus. God, I praise you for the example in Mary and this woman of, of love and affection poured out faith and trust in you, Lord, please build that into us in this church. We need your help, Lord. Thank you so much for giving us so much help. We love you and we commit it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.